Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on us. Bless the speaking and the hearing of your word. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it is uh, Olympics season pretty soon. How many of you guys are excited to learn about a sport you've never heard of before with the Summer Olympics? That's usually how it is for me. I'll watch any sports that are on during that time if I can get them. Um, And this had me thinking about Olympians of the past. So I want to do a little quiz game with you guys here. You can buzz in, actually, if you want to give your answer. So if you think you know the answer to this question, you can go, "Ah," and then I'll call on you, and then you can say what the answer is, okay? So who can tell me who Simone Biles is? Oh, good. We have an aunt. Yes. She is the top gymnast in the world. I don't know if, I guess they must rank, but I mean, she's got all the gold medals. The anticipation is that she's going to get even more shortly. Very good. All right, you get 50 points. I don't know what toward, but you're set. All right, Uh, next one for you guys. Who is Michael Phelps? Yes. He's a swimmer, right? And did did he have the most gold medals of any American or any Olympian or something like that? Uh, An amazing swimmer. I think he's done now. Uh, But anyway, we all still know who he is. He is a great Olympic swimmer. All right, last one for you guys. Who is Tanya Harding? There's all laughing, but no buzzing going on here. Yes, all the way in the back disgraced skater. Okay, so we are getting to the core of it already, aren't we? Notice how we define these three different people, the sentence, the byline that we give to to, to them. Uh, Now, of course, she's not a summer Olympian, so, you know, you have to forgive me for that one right off the bat, but she was a figure skater in the 90s, and as you stated, she is a disgraced figure skater from the 90s. Why? What did she do? Yeah, I see some of you even just making the motion. She cheated. To her main rival, Nancy Kerrigan, uh, she paid, she and her manager apparently paid some goons to club Nancy's knee so that she could not compete against her so that Tanya Harding would win. So she is a disgraced figure skater, right? That's how we would define her. Now, if you're like me and you like even more obscure sports stuff, then you probably watched all of these ESPN 30 for 30 shows, documentaries that they had like about a decade ago. Uh, This is way before the big Jordan documentary that took all of our attention last year. Um, But one of them was actually on Tanya Harding, and I found it fascinating because in that documentary, they don't try to claim that she didn't do or have a, a part in that necessarily, but they build a much deeper story for you as to who Tanya Harding is. And they show you her difficult upbringing, Uh, They talk about how she was always a little shorter and apparently less attractive than the other figure skaters. And you would hear this kind of code language when the judges would talk about her scores that really were just ways of saying, well, she's not as pretty uh, as the other girls, even though technically she was doing very well with it. 
Uh, it talked about, kind of showed how she was in some ways uh, brought to this point in her life where she was desperate uh, to do what was needed. And then, quite sadly in the documentary, you see that Tanya Harding goes from being a metaphorical punching bag to a literal one. Because after she was uh, done with skating, or rather skating was done with her, she got into women's boxing and was getting beat up uh, for money. So now who do you think Tanya Harding is? Is she a villain? Is she a victim? Is there a mixture here? Is it so easy for us to know? If we turn the question to you and me for a moment, who are you? And maybe that classic rock song is already playing in your head. But who are you? If you were, and you could even, if you're like a note taker, you've got your little notes app on your phone, and you want to take even a moment here right now to, to write it. If you had to do one byline for yourself, a few words or a sentence that says, this is who I am, and don't give me that pious churchy answer, what would you say? What would you want other people to say as, a, as the sentence that defines you? Think about if you are, now I know this is kind of a morbid thought, but um, this is actually a healthy exercise for Christians and all human beings, really. Consider your death and someone that is close to you. Maybe you can think of someone that's close to you and is going to be favorable. Maybe you can think of someone who knows you really well and you are afraid of the first sentence that they will write for your obituary. How does your obituary start? What defines you in life? Would the thing that you say about yourself and the first, the opening salvo or sentence of someone in your life, maybe someone who loves you dearly, maybe a sibling <laughs> who also loves you but also knows you, maybe a frenemy of some sort, would those things match up? Would there be a lot of overlap uh, for you in defining who you are? It's a really kind of a huge question for us, and it doesn't really matter what stage of life you're in. Uh, I do have a lot of sympathy for our younger people because um, even when I think about my time in middle school and high school and trying to figure out who I was, I had enough confusion just trying to figure out, you know, the athletics and girls and all of this kind of stuff. And now sometimes I feel like it's even more piled on you guys even earlier to define yourselves to the world. But you might also be in your 70s and trying to figure out who, who am I right now at different stages of our lives, right? Some things kind of rise to the top for us, and we emphasize some things over others. It doesn't really matter. Every one of us is dealing with this question, and which narrative of your life is actually the correct one? We spend a lot of time in our lives, we don't even realize that we're doing this, but building up our own narratives, projecting to others what we want them to see about ourselves. And you know this is true whenever somebody says something about you that you think is completely off base, you know? Oh, you know, I wish I was more insensitive like you about stuff, you know? 
Wait a second, I'm insensitive? No, 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 you've got me all wrong. And then you go to these, I always think of George Costanza in Seinfeld trying to prove, prove the opposite of whatever people are saying about him. And he protests way too much, right? But we're always doing that in our lives. We're, we're putting out this narrative and we are receiving this narrative from other people. Other people telling us who we are. And it's so much of a given that sometimes we don't realize what a burden it actually is in our lives, especially when we're still trying to hold something together that feels like it's fracturing or when something has fallen apart completely and we are having this crisis of identity for ourselves. A really dear uh, friend and mentor of mine recently had a health scare a couple months back and uh, was spent some time in the hospital, dealt with some heart stuff. Uh, he's been recovering now, but um, in talking with him and hearing from his little podcast that I listen to whenever he posts it, uh, for hearing from him, he mentioned that he had a lot of these kinds of uh, insights from the Lord after this experience of his health scare. And I won't go into all of them, but the, the last one that he just shared um, kind of blew my mind. He said as he was thinking about his whole, he's in his, he's like 71, I think now. Um, he says as he looks back over his whole life, and after he has this health scare, he felt like he received this word from the Lord he, that, that Paul, probably only about 15% of the narrative that you tell about your life is correct. That the things that you think were the most important things, the things that you thought were kind of meaningless, the stuff you thought was your great success and the things that you thought were your great failures, the ways in which you define yourself against others or with groups of people in the world. He's saying that from the Lord, he felt like he was being told maybe up to 15% of that is accurate for yourself. And that was such a startling thing for me to think about, especially as I'm in my midlife and I'm still going gangbusters constructing my narrative, right? I've got, I've got to let people see me as a certain thing. I need to work hard that I can project this to them. I'm also trying to figure out what I'm supposed to value and what's supposed to be important. And to hear Paul say, Ryan, you're probably 85% or more incorrect. Actually felt like a release, actually felt like a release because we spend so much of our lives constructing these things, whether it's about the places that we're from or our politics or our worldview or the groups that we belong to. We spend so much time building those things and they are not the front story of our lives. They're not actually the, the places where God is always at work for us. They're the places where we think we have to be at work for us. Now, assuming that you're even remotely entertaining this thought with me and my buddy Paul, that you're uh, at most 15% right about yourselves, <laughs> what do we do with this information? I mean, if it's true, what's the point of it? Well, God's word, I did promise to get there eventually with you guys. God's word, as it always does, has something to say for us, and it has release and freedom as an invitation for us. So I encourage you to check out what we're in right now, Mark 7. 
Rich just read for us, and we had a pretty long reading there, but I'm just going to, I'm not going to reread a bunch of parts, but I want to encourage you to kind of look through this with me. And I want to give you a little bit of uh, background again, just to bring us to back to where we were. So as Pastor Pat mentioned in week one when we started this, Mark introduces Jesus through John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ. The whole story is about him. But as Pat also mentioned, from the very beginning, people start wrestling over the narrative of Jesus. There are competing stories that people want to tell about who he is. And this happens in your life right now. We did Michael Phelps and Simone Biles and Tanya Harding, somewhat innocuous. But if you go out into the world right now and ask any person in any sphere of your life who is Jesus, you will see the same kind of wrestling occurring. And in Mark's gospel earlier on, you had people saying, well, Messiah, not so much. Maybe he's a prophet. Maybe he's a great teacher. Uh, One of the weeks that I preached, we actually heard the religious leaders say Jesus was in league with Satan. So that's quite a narrative description, a counter to what what John said about Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You couldn't be farther apart in defining who he is. Uh, We saw probably, I think, two weeks ago, Jesus is in his hometown. And what do all of his uh, old neighbors and extended family have to say about him? He's out of his mind. What's he, who does he think he is? He sounds like a megalomaniac. Isn't this Joseph's little son? What's going on here? So they start telling a different narrative. Now the problem is the, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, the people that are kind of the cultural influencers and the power brokers, just as in any day, they don't like things being overturned. They don't like the apple cart upset. And so those religious leaders are constantly trying to recast the story about Jesus and to tell people who he is. But the problem is none of it actually sticks to Jesus, which is also good news for his followers, you and me. None of it sticks to Jesus because despite what everyone else seems to be saying about him, he is still teaching about the kingdom of God in ways that people cannot help but want to listen to. And he is still restoring every aspect of people's lives that he comes into contact with. It doesn't matter whether it's healing or being out of their mind or having brokenness in relationship with others. Jesus is restoring all of these things. And so the narrative that other people are trying to put on him will not stick to him. And so today in Mark 7, we see the religious leaders try a different approach to defining who Jesus is, instead of trying to go straight for him, what do they do? They pick on his followers. By the way, just as as an aside, do you ever feel like that is the dynamic you experience as a follower of Christ? I mean, don't we sometimes feel a little gun shy about even telling other people (laughs) that we believe, because we don't want to be associated with like, you know, the bad actors uh, or with kind of the wrong impressions Uh, to other people. And and a lot of times people will even say, well, Jesus is fine with me. I just don't like any of his people. Well, I'm one of his people. That hurts, you know? And that's what they do. That's what they go for in in Mark 7 here. They basically say, um, hey, Jesus, your disciples are not washing their hands. Now, as a father of three young children, I have a lot of sympathy for this complaint. 
Did you guys wash your hands? It's time for dinner. What were you doing outside? Get your finger out of your ear. Wash your hands. So when I hear this on the face of it, you know, out of the context, it's like, yeah, why aren't his disciples washing their hands? What's going on here? But what we see in this broad story in Mark's gospel here is that what they're actually doing is trying to say, your disciples are lawbreakers against God's will, and therefore you're bad, right? They're, they're wanting to load a narrative onto Jesus. Now, notice what Jesus does here is he actually turns this back around on them, and it's some of his harshest words. Notice Jesus rarely has harsh words for sinners and sufferers. He does have harsh words for self-righteous people who are coming at him or other sufferers, and he does that in Mark's gospel today. He says, look at you guys. You are projecting yourselves a certain way to the world. You've kind of created this story of we're the faithful people. We're the ones that are following God's rules. We're the people you all should pattern your lives after, right? Be more like us, and then God will be happy with you. And Jesus says, you, in the midst of doing that, you actually put all of your little stories in front of God's actual will for your lives. And he gives just one example here. Right? He says that you're told to honor your father and mother, but you guys have come up with some additional little rules and traditions that say, well, if I give a gift to God, I don't have to give it to my parents. How many of you guys in retiree status are thinking that'd be great for your kids? Right? Well, I'm just going to give it to the Lord and I'm not going to help you out right now. And that's what Jesus is pointing out to them. They, they've put out this story about themselves that is not true. And Jesus is saying, stop fronting this to other people. Stop acting as if you're something other than you are and instead receive me. And what's so ironic about this is that these guys are holding on so much to their way of doing things. They're holding on so tightly to the rules. I mean, whenever you hear someone protesting to other Christians about the rules, watch out. That's what they're doing. And Jesus, in the midst of doing this, what are they rejecting? God himself in their midst. They're missing it. They're caught up on this other stuff. And, and meanwhile, Jesus is reorienting the whole world and walking toward their redemption at the cross. And they're stuck. And so Jesus is saying, stop believing the lie about yourself. Stop trying to create this story about yourself and receive me. And this is where we get the most beautiful part for you and I in this story. And that is the woman at the end of the section that we heard the reading about. Because right after this uh, interaction with the Pharisees, Jesus encounters this woman. He's trying to get, you notice how often this happens in Mark's gospel where Jesus is trying to get a break? And this happened last week. Pastor Pat preached on it. They're trying to get some rest and then 5,000 plus people come out to him. Jesus is trying to, think about all of the places in your life where you're trying to get a break and God's actually working in that space. Jesus is trying to get a break and this woman comes out to him, and Mark tells us that she is a Gentile, so she's not a daughter of Abraham, and she's Syrophoenician. You don't need to know all the details of that, except that, you know, what is her ethnicity, and what is her background, and who does she really belong to? Yeah, for all those religious people, she's a questionable person, right? That's the, the narrative. She's Tanya Harding, you guys, right? She is Tanya Harding to them. And this is really fascinating because it's, this is one of those weird passages because you know what Jesus does is he calls her a dog. That's what he says in the passage. 
He says it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. And it's interesting for me, you know, this, this story kind of makes me think of like the overturning of the tables when Jesus is angry and I'm always kind of like, ah, I don't know. Like, is Jesus really being that harsh with her? I don't want to be too quick to try to defend Jesus, but I do think that in the context of what's been going on here, what Jesus is doing is he's actually showing those religious leaders like just out with it, what they all say. But, I mean, they're polite enough to her or they avoid her, but this is what they actually say behind her back. And Jesus is saying, well, this is, what, this is how you're viewed by others. So you know what Jesus does is he actually lobs a narrative at this woman. You are a dog, undeserving of these things. And you know what the woman does? Ignores it. She looks right past it. It doesn't, she takes it actually. She just accepts it. Sure, fine. But I need the scraps from your table. I don't care what they call me. I don't care how I see myself. I don't care that what the narrative is that anyone else is trying to put on me. I have a great need right now and you, Jesus, are the Savior. And that's it. That's all that matters. See, this woman, whatever title they give her, whatever else we would want to know or not want to know about her, there's really only one definition of her that matters and she is a woman of faith. She is a woman who is looking away from herself to Jesus. And she's a hero of faith. I mean, I'm always hesitant to call people heroes in the Bible other than Jesus. But I'm going to go out on a limb on this one and say that this woman is a hero of faith. And Jesus commends her for this because she is not caught up on the narrative about herself. And that is God's invitation to you and to me today. Wherever you are at in these spaces, whatever, whatever words are being lobbed on you by others, even if they're well-meaning or if they're destructive, whatever you're trying to do to kind of build up your own you know, personal resume, God's invitation to you and I today is to say, don't worry about any of that. Don't worry about it at all. Don't worry about what group you're part of or what you've succeeded at or failed at. Don't, don't worry about where you think you're actually making an impact and where you think you're being useless, you're at best 15% right about it anyway. But Jesus is there for you and he is at work for you. Nobody else defines who you are. You don't even define who you are. Jesus alone calls you beloved and he comes to give you life abundantly to restore all things and to make all things new. And so that is who you are. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.